Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Today we live in the midst of an information explosion. Never before has the average person been privy to so much knowledge. Today, with the internet and with the click of a mouse, vast storehouses of data are at our fingertips. In the year 1292, the Sorbonne Library in Paris was home for 1,338 handwritten books. The library's cachet of literature represented about 90% of the accumulation of man's wisdom for the previous several thousand years. Today, that same number of books, 1,338, are the total books published in the world on a daily basis. Rewind the clock just a hundred years ago. Today's edition of the Atlanta Journal contains more information than a person living in 1913 would have seen in their lifetime. There is a volcano of knowledge erupting all around us. Social commentator Chris Kimball points out that in the early half of the 1900s, you had to have guts. Guts, courage, drive. This was what society valued most. In the latter half of the 20th century, you had to have heart. Sensitivity and self-expression were the coveted characteristics in American culture. But now, in the 21st century, Kimball says that the organ of emphasis is the brain. Today, you got to be smart. you got to have brains. Intelligence is the most desired human trait. There is, though, a danger with this ascendance of intelligence. For man can become so smart that he thinks he's catching up with God. Don't be so foolish. All our knowledge is a speck on top of a speck on top of a speck compared to God's superior wisdom. I love Isaiah 40, verse 15. It's a passage that puts us in our place the prophet says that compared to our great God, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the balance. Look, God lifts up the isles or the continents as a very little thing. A while back, I saw a headline in the USA Today newspaper entitled, Federal Officials Look at Smart Airbag Technology. The article discussed the high-tech development of computer sensors that help in the safe deployment of airbags in cars in the event of a crash. But what captured my attention in that headline were those three words, smart airbag. And it hit me. I know a lot of folks that could be classified as smart airbags. In fact, the person who has deceived himself into thinking that he can question God's wisdom, 
or that God needs his help or her counsel, that person is nothing but a smart airbag. Religious and secular historians alike consider the Apostle Paul as one of the most brilliant human minds who ever lived. In addition to his natural intellectual prowess, God revealed volumes of spiritual insight to the Apostle Paul. Of the 27 New Testament books, Paul wrote over half. He was given the lion's share of New Covenant theology. God entrusted Paul with a mountain of strategic truth. In fact, when I get to heaven, I'm planning on a very long sit-down conversation with the Apostle Paul. He's first on my list. Yet in our text today, Paul concludes that all that God had revealed to him was just a thimble full of wisdom compared to the endless ocean of divine truth. In essence, Paul was living under an eyedropper while buckets of truth were yet to be emptied. We consider Paul the greatest theologian of all time, but Paul saw himself as having barely scratched the surface. He had lured his bucket into a bottomless well. It's amazing that Paul's confession of naivety comes after some of his deepest theological thoughts. Romans 9 through 11 are some mind-grinding theology. It'll fry your gray matter. It's some of the weightiest, most cerebral arguments ever advanced. And you would think that when Paul finally shifts gears, he would pat himself on the back for such profundity. But no, no. After applying himself to the knowledge of God, what impresses Paul most was not how much he knew, but how much there is to know. Stretching out his mind towards God expanded his heart for God. God's grandeur, God's greatness, his wisdom and his working stirred Paul's heart and endeared him to the God that he served and yet he could never fully understand. Paul's contemplation was rewarded with greater adoration and a strengthened dedication. Well, in these last four verses here of Romans chapter 11, Paul looks in three directions. To the depths of God's wisdom, to the height of God's ways, and to the center of God's will. Wisdom so deep, ways so high, a will so prevalent, none of us can completely grasp it all. Paul wants to make certain that none of us ever become smart airbags. First, Paul wants us to plunge the depths of God's wisdom. Let's read again verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Knowledge involves the gathering of information. Wisdom is the skill to use that information that's been gathered. God is rich in both wisdom and knowledge. I'm not being irreverent when I say this. But God is the one true know-it-all. He is. Nothing is hidden from God. He's never surprised by new findings or developments. God knows everything. God is capable of learning nothing. He already knows it all. The theologians say that God is omniscient. The term means all-knowing. And God is also all-wise. He's never perplexed. He never stumbles. He's never stumped or baffled or caught off guard. 
There is no problem he can't solve, no riddle he can't answer, no knot he can't untangle. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer writes this about the nature of the God we serve. He says, God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all laws, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret. All things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth. I suppose that sums it up. Some of you are worried about big brother. Let me tell you, you got a God in heaven who knows all things. God is like an artist constantly at his best. He never has a bad day. He is a ceaseless stream of creativity. God's knowledge and wisdom would exceed the brightest human, even if that person had no blind spots, no creative laws, no bouts with depression, no need for sleep. And God is not subject to the frustration of aging, like some of us are. His powers don't diminish over time. His perfections never change. God is always at peak performance. The genius of our Lord Jesus was his ability to take imponderable truths and make them easily understood and applicable. In other words, Jesus put the cookies on the bottom shelf. He was good at it. I like what one observer writes. He says, we take simple truths and make them profound, whereas Jesus took profound truths and made them simple. God's truth is so simple. A first grader can read the Bible and through it enter into a saving relationship with Jesus. Whereas a skilled theologian can meditate on the very same passage and uncover layer upon layer of new insight. Never exhausting that passage usefulness. God's truth is both simple and profound at the same time. I like the old adage, the Bible is a river of truth in which the wisest man can never touch bottom, and yet the simplest child can never drown. When my son was five years old, we were driving home when he asked me, Dad, what are we going to talk about? Well, I suggested that we talk about different areas of our lives. How's it going with our family and our friends and with God? When I suggested... Son, let's just talk about life. He shook his head. Oh, Dad, that's complicated. <laughs> and life can get complicated. Whether you're five years old or 55 years old, have you noticed life is not always a smooth, seamless progression? It has its ups and downs. Often circumstances arise that are hard to explain. There are moments when we wonder if God has lost control. If he's fallen asleep at the wheel, sometimes we conclude that God made a mistake. I mean, in the face of life's complications, we can jump to the wrong conclusion. Reminds me of the bunny rabbit and the snake. Both animals were orphans, and they had been blind from birth. Once they were traveling through the forest when the bunny tripped over the snake. He apologized. He said, I'm so sorry. I'm blind, so I didn't see you. In fact, I'm also an orphan, and I don't even know what I am. The snake answered. He said, that's very interesting. I, I have a similar story. Tell you what I could do, though. I could slither all over you. 
just kind of size you up and then tell you what you are. The bunny said, great. So the snake slithered all over the rabbit's body, and when he was done, he concluded, well, you're covered with fur, you have really long ears, your nose twitches, and you have a soft cotton tail. You must be a bunny rabbit. Well, the bunny was so grateful, he, he wanted to return the favor. He said, well, you know, maybe I could feel all over you with my paw and do for you what you've done for me today. The snake said, please, would you? When the bunny was done, he concluded, you're smooth and slippery. You have a forked tongue and no backbone. I say you must be an IRS agent. <laughs> My apologies to any IRS agents here today. You can't audit me or I'll scream you're targeting me for my jokes. But here's my point. Sometimes things happen in the dark. We're blind. Our perspective is dim. We don't see all of the factors at play. And unless we're careful, we can draw the wrong conclusions from just our circumstances. Corey Ten Boone stated, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. Just because you're in the dark this morning and you don't understand all that's going on in your life, don't assume that God is blind. So often God works behind the scenes incognito. God is all-knowing and God is all-wise. God never miscalculates. He never crosses dates or arrives late. When you're passing through the darkness, trust that God is always on time and in control. And yet sometimes, like that rabbit, we can draw an erroneous conclusion. We can assume that it's finally happened, that God has made his very first mistake. Years ago, before his election, former Atlanta mayor Bill Campbell, he made a mistake that almost cost him the race. It would be the first of many of Bill's mistakes. The AJC reported it this way, mayoral candidate Bill Campbell made a misstep that even a friend conceded was major at the standing room only funeral last week of Reverend Eric B. Fleming at Mount Carmel Baptist Church. Speaking before a crowd of 7,000 at the funeral, Campbell characterized the death of the 22-year-old Fleming in a car accident as a mistake, causing a hush of dismay to fall over churchgoers. We spoke to a half dozen attendees, including two ministers, who explained that Campbell's statement undermined their belief that God is all-wise and all-knowing, which is why it created such a stir. The article went on. Antioch Baptist Cameron Alexander rebuked Campbell at the funeral, earning applause and amens when he said God never makes mistakes and wasn't running for re-election. The next week, an embarrassed Bill Campbell returned to the same church, apologizing to the Mount Carmel congregation for doubting God's wisdom and God's love. And yet I'm afraid... Many of us owe God an apology this morning for the times we've questioned and doubted His wisdom and love. How many occasions have you wondered if God, what God was doing in your life, if He was really in control or was He making a mistake? I love the three words that appear in Exodus 14, verse 21. You recall the story. Moses had led the Hebrews out of Egypt and to the banks of the Red Sea. But the Egyptians had a change of heart. 
Their army had chased them to the edge of the ocean and a fiery cloud held them off all night long. And what a long night it was. Imagine the Hebrews waiting for the morning light. What would happen? The seas in front of them. The Egyptian armies on their heels. And yet verse 14 tells us, the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land. Note those three words. All that night. You know God works the night shift? God was working in the dark to accomplish their deliverance. To the Hebrews, it was lights out. But God's plan unfolded under the cover of darkness. And this is how God often works in our lives. Reminds me of the little boy who was scared of the dark. Late one night, his mother asked him to go out on the back porch and fetch the broom. He balked. He said, but mommy, it's dark out there. The mother told him, said, honey, don't worry. Jesus is always with us. He's with us wherever we go, even when we're in the dark. The little guy, he walked to the back door cracked it open just a little bit, and then he shouted out, Hey, Jesus, if you're out there, how about handing me that broom? <laughs> hey, Jesus is with us, even in the dark places. Oh, never underestimate the depth of God's wisdom. But Paul also peers to the height of God's ways. Notice verse 33. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. In other words, when we check the universe's pecking order, we find God at the top of the heap. Look to the tallest mountain, the precipice of the world. And there you'll find Jesus he is the king of the hill. No one can lunge to God's rung on the ladder. He looks up to no one. He looks down on everyone. Verses 34 and 35 use three rhetorical questions to show us that God has no colleagues. He has no counselors. And he has no creditors. You probably got all three. God has none. God never needs help. He never has. He never will. Hypothetically speaking, if God did ever have a problem, where would he go for help? I mean, where would God turn? There's no one who really knows his concerns. Nowhere to, where, to whom he can go for counsel. Nobody to whom he owes an explanation. God is the one and only person who is truly on his own. Understand, God has no colleagues. Paul asks in verse 34, Who has known the mind of the Lord? God has no equals. He's peerless. Hey, put him in a lineup and trust me, you can pick God out. No one thinks on God's level or sees things from God's perspective. You can go into the nursery this morning and start up a conversation with the babies on the subject of quantum physics or Einstein's theory of relativity. Goo goo gaga is about all they know on the subject. 
And yet those babies will come closer to explaining the complexities of particle physics than we'll come to fully explaining God. The sum of all of our knowledge is little more than a goo-goo and a gaga compared to the vastness of God. What we know of God would be zero if he hadn't chosen to reveal himself through his word, the Bible. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, the prophet speaks for our unlimited God. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God has no colleagues, and he has no counselors either. Paul says, or who has become his counselor? Oh, there are many people, including you and me, who on occasion have tried to counsel God. How often do our prayers consist of offering God suggestions? Well, God, I need a new job, and, I, and here's how we can do it, Lord. Or, Lord, I'm tired of being single. I need somebody to marry, and I got a guy picked out, Lord. Let me, let me tell you about him. Or God, it's time for me and my spouse to have a baby. We're tired of waiting, Lord. We want one right now. And without realizing it, our prayer life can become a suggestion box. Realize God has been in charge of the universe for a very long time now, and he hasn't suddenly begun to need your help. He's not looking for your guidance or for you to give him some helpful hints. What he is expecting is for you to trust him. And show him your allegiance. A good dancer knows that you can't lead and follow at the same time, can you? One partner leads, the other follows. And the same is true in our relationship with God. And guess who is expected to do the following? It's you. It's been said, just as there is foolish wisdom, so there is wise ignorance. Don't pry into God's ark. Don't inquire into things not revealed. I'm happy that God makes me a member of his court, not of his council. Here's another way to say it. When God puts down a period, don't you change it to a question mark. We have no right to expect God to consult us before he makes decisions. He's not obligated to solicit your opinion before he makes moves that affect your life. Hey, God is God. He's not applying for the job. God owes us no explanations. God has no counselors. And God also has no creditors. Notice verse 35. Our who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. Hey, God loves you. He really does. But God don't owe you. Too many Americans grow up believing that the God of the Bible is the author of the American dream. That somewhere in Scripture, God has obligated Himself to provide us a good job with benefits, a higher salary than our dad made, weekends off, a big fat savings account, a split levels, a spouse, 2.8 kids, and a dog and a cat. Hey, certainly God loves us, and He wants to give good gifts to His kids, but God doesn't owe us spit. His gifts and His blessings are never something we deserve. They're always gifts of His grace. This is what Job failed to realize. 
He thought that God owed him an explanation for the terrible calamities that had befallen him. It's been said, in demanding why, Job lost his way. He resented God's behind-the-scenes movements. He wanted God to come out in the open and speak to him like a man. Job got proud and arrogant. Job reminds me of a professional golfer named Tommy Bolt. Bolt was known for his sweet swings and his terrible temper. Once, after lipping the cup on six straight putts, Bolt threw up his club, shook his fist to heaven, and shouted at God, Why don't you come out and fight like a man? Author Philip Yancey has a chapter in one of his books he entitles, Arms Too Short to Box with God. That describes Tommy Bolt. It describes Job as well. Both were foolish enough to think that they could duke it out with God. But Paul knew better. He realized that human arms are far too short to box with God. He doesn't even try. Paul faced unanswered questions regarding his own life. But rather than resent God's hidden purposes, he rejoiced. Job got mad at what he didn't understand. Paul marveled at God's wisdom. Job pouted. Paul praised Here in Romans 11, Paul expresses his trust in God's wisdom and ways. J.B. Phillips once wrote, If God were small enough to figure out, He wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. I agree. I take consolation in the fact that I could never decipher all there is to know about God. Think about it. If you and I could figure out God with our little pea brains, He sure wouldn't be much of a God, would He? When you embrace God, man, you've got a tiger by the tail. God is not going to play by your rules or do business on your terms. There's an old saying, if you dance with a grizzly bear, you better let him lead. And this is true of God. King Solomon said it best, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Once a little boy, he was drawing a picture of God. His mom tried to set him straight. Son, you can't draw a picture of God. No one knows what God looks like. Unfazed, the little boy replied, They will when I get through. (laughs) But I've met too many Christians like that little boy who think they've got God all figured out. They'll condemn anybody who disagrees with their interpretation. Rather than let God be God, they limit God to their own logic. All human beings are capable at times of stuffing God into the box of their own ignorance. Verse 33 tells us God's wisdom is unsearchable and His ways past finding out. The New American Translation uses the terms unsearchable and unfathomable. Fathomable. I can never say that word. I put too many M's in there. Unfathomable. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 tells us, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Mystical Jews have a name for God. They call Him insof, or without limit. God is infinite. Man is finite. And that presents a problem. How can our limited mind discern this limitless God? It is obvious that God's wisdom is unsearchable. This is why man could never discover God on his own. 
God has never found. People sometimes say, well, I found God. No, you didn't. God found you. God's wisdom and God's truth is beyond our reach. Thus, God's wisdom has to be revealed to us. When my kids were tots, we, we'd love to play hide and seek. And I was a pretty clever hider, if I don't say so myself. I mean, I could hide in places where the kids would never find me. But what fun was that? That wasn't the point. The fun was, wasn't staying hid. The fun was getting found. And this is how God feels. You don't find God. He makes himself findable. He reveals himself to us. Your search for God would have ended in despair had God not chosen in his grace to reveal himself to you. The knowledge of God comes to us not through investigation, but through revelation. We learn of God and we experience God, not because we've reached up to pull him down, but because he has stooped down to reveal himself to us. In his amazing grace, God simplifies his wisdom. God makes himself knowable through his word, the Bible. God has taken his unbounded, limitless logic and wisdom and dressed it in the straight jacket of human language and finite logic. The passage I quoted earlier, Deuteronomy 29.29, concludes, The secret things belong to the Lord, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. God's wisdom is not only unsearchable, but it's also unfathomable. The Greek word means untraceable. The steps that God takes. The logic He uses, the grids through which He analyzes situations, they don't always show up on our radar. You know, the TSA scanners at the airport, they can detect an array of items, but not the Holy Spirit. Psalm 77 discusses the mysterious parting of the Red Sea. There the psalm says of God, The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters, and your footsteps were not known. Psalmist is saying, God, your ways were over our head. You know, I believe one of the chief reasons for this life, for the here and now, is to teach us to trust God even when we can't trace Him. Can you do that? Can you trust God even when you don't see His hand at work? Even when you can't trace Him? When the storms of life blow across the sands of time and God's footprint disappears from our view, what do we do? Do we still trust that he's there? Always remember, what's over my head is still under God's feet. I like this prayer. I cannot grasp your mind, but with my whole heart, I trust your love. Paul probed the depth of God's wisdom and then the height of God's ways. And finally, he looks to the center of God's will. Verse 36 for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. The deeper Paul studies the world around him, he sees God's purposes carried out in every area of life. 
God is the hub, the axis around which everything else in life spins. God's prevailing presence and his providence, his overarching plans will never fail. At the heart of every situation stands God. God's architectural stamp is on the plans of the universe. And by the way, on the plans of your life. All that happens is of Him. Look and you'll see God's name written in the corner of the canvas. You'll see God's name on the base of the vase. He's artist and architect. He makes all things beautiful in His time. The universe is also through Him. He is the means and motive behind all the natural forces that combine to make life happen. He is the author and finisher of creation. The ebbs and flows of life, they start and end with God. All things come through Him and all things are to Him. God is the planner and the means and the ambition of all things. God is that single thread that weaves throughout the universe and ties all things together. Everything is to His praise. The drama that we call life ultimately ends in bringing glory to God. Hey, in those times when a tornado touches down and wipes out an entire town in Oklahoma, we wonder, don't we? We wonder, how can this be of Him and through Him and to Him? And yet the Bible declares that it is. Right now, we see through a glass dimly. But ultimately, all things will work to God's glory. Verse 36 reminds me of the Sunday morning breakfast when the little boy had too much waffle and too little time to eat it. His parents were late for church as they rushed out of the house. Well, rather than waste a perfectly good waffle, the little guy just slipped it off his plate and he stuck it in his pocket. He figured he could finish it later that morning. Well, at church that morning, the pastor talked about the omnipresence of God, that God is everywhere at all times. This upset the little guy. Halfway through the sermon, the little boy prayed, God, if you're in my pocket, please don't eat my waffle. Hey, God is in our pockets. Perhaps we could say it better. We are in God's pocket. Life is God's idea. And whether we realize it or not, He is involved in all that happens. Oh, there is evil in the world that accounts for a lot of the bad stuff. But both the good and the bad are at the very least allowed by God. And it is ultimately attended, intended for His glory. It's been said, God is an infinite circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. God is not only at the center of the world, He's at the center of your world and my world, whether we acknowledge it or not. Creator and craftsman and king, God is one who words cannot describe. I know one thing, though, if you want a full and meaningful life, you should stop ignoring Him. Instead, you should revolve your entire world around God. Let me close with a true story. A young naval officer on his first overseas assignment had orders by the captain to initiate the launch of a massive ship with a stream of decisive commands. He had the deck buzzing with activity. 
In record time, the mammoth ship left the dock and streamed out into the channel. The young ensign was so proud of the good job he'd done. He was surprised when he got a radio communication from the captain. It read, My personal congratulations upon completing your underway preparation exercise according to the book and with amazing speed. In your haste, however, you have overlooked one of the unwritten rules. Make sure the captain is aboard before getting underway. And the same is true in our lives. Man, you can be a Christian. Your deck can be busy and buzzing with all kinds of activity, even church-related stuff. Oh, look at me. I'm taking charge and barking orders and get lots and lots of stuff done. You think you're running the ship just fine by yourself. But don't be a smart airbag. Before you set sail, make sure that the captain's on board and at the helm. Blaise Pascal once stated, I love God because I know Him, but I adore Him because I cannot comprehend Him. Who are we up against God? Oh, this morning, look deep into God's wisdom. Look high at God's ways. Look all around at God's will. Hey, come down off your high horse today. A little humility goes a long, long ways. You are not your own captain. Let me read verse 36 one more time, and I want you to join with me on the last word, would you? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen.